I'm Arthur Falls, and it's with great pleasure that I get to finally introduce the revamped State Change podcast. The first 38 episodes of this show covered the work being performed within the Consensus Venture Production Studio. Going forward, we will be capturing conversations about the subjects related to the work that takes place there. We're publishing four episodes to start with. They each stand alone, but also, to some extent, as a single unit. Future episodes will attempt to answer the questions raised in those prior. In the case that a particularly interesting conversation on any subject comes my way, you can expect to find it thrown into the mix as well. And of course, while some of these discussions will be high level, we won't shy away from getting deep into the technicals. The prompt for today's conversation is Technologies of Social Organization. Our guests are Joseph Lubin, founder of Consensus and co-founder of Ethereum, and Vinay Gupta, inventor of the Hexayurt Emergency Shelter and once member of both organizations. So uh, I'm probably best known for the Hexayurt Project, which is a disaster relief shelter that I invented in 2002. Um, and uh, I moved on to the blockchain around tail end of 2014, joined the Ethereum Project, managed the release, and I'm now in London spinning up a venture capital fund called Hexayurt Capital. Hi, uh, my name is Joseph Lubin, founder of a company called Consensus and co-founder of a project called Ethereum. Consensus operates on essentially two prongs. Uh, One, um, uh, we build decentralized applications, tools, and utilities for developers um, for the public Ethereum blockchain, uh, which of course also operate on private permissioned versions of the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, We also... Uh, on our second prong, do enterprise consulting, uh, mostly on private permission blockchains for uh, enterprises and government um, in different niches like banking, insurance, supply chain management, energy, and healthcare. What I'd like to do today is discuss social organization. And part of the reason is that Blockchain itself is an internet technology designed to enable uh, coordination of individuals across the world. Consensus, uh, your company, Joe, operates using a very unique uh, organizational structure. And Vinay, you have a background in helping global organizations like the UN uh, solve, solve problems around disaster relief, as you said. So to begin with, what do you see as the relationship between technology and social organization in the contemporary age? Well, I mean, if you start with the contemporary age, that's a really, really hard question to answer. You know, if you try and analyze anything in the current state of complexity, it's basically impossible. But if you go back to kind of the beginning of uh, the city, you know, it's clear that you've always had this relationship between technology and social organization in that you needed things like wells and viaducts, you needed agriculture, you needed roads, carts, you know, transport by horse, all this kind of stuff had to come into existence before you could have cities as we know them. So there's always been a very tight interrelationship between the available technology and the available sort of lifestyles that are uh, there for people. Uh, as for where things are right now, I think that we're very confused because we've got more technological change than society can absorb, and it's leaving people extremely disoriented. So we keep seeing flashes of new kinds of social organization form, but before they fully mature as cultures, the next thing is there. So we're in this period of kind of perpetual acceleration, perpetual disorientation, perpetual evolution. 
what I found particularly interesting about uh, Consensus Show was the way that the organization itself was structured. Can you explain a bit about how, uh, how Consensus is structured and, and why that organizational structure works? Happy to. Uh, so one of the things uh, that I found amusing uh, early on in the, in the Bitcoin space was that uh, these people would have these epiphanies of how the, this decentralizing technology was going to change everything, and they would run out and they would form a company. They would, they would build a, a centralized structure to, uh, to deliver all that uh, decentralized goodness. Um, so it's a necessary evil, perhaps, and uh, not not really complaining about that. But uh, we are doing our best to take decentralization as seriously as possible, uh, full-stack decentralization, and, and that includes uh, uh, recognizing that top-down command and control um, in organizations, governments, military, etc., um, is a, a tremendous thing uh, in a context in which communication is slow and expensive and decision-making is slow and expensive. And, and it's brought us, uh, our society and our economy, very, very far, basically, to this point. And, and this point is uh, a point um, that can be described as a planet, uh, human society, wrapped in many, many meshes of... Uh, global communication systems, instant communication systems. Uh, and uh, this technology called Bitcoin came along and enabled uh, um, a set of actors, up to 50% of whom might be malicious, to come to a decision collectively uh, within about 10 minutes. Ethereum has taken that down to 14 seconds and soon four seconds. And so we uh, we have this ability to form uh, companies, form systems that are uh, pretty radically decentralized. And so at Consensus, we do our best to be flat, uh, fluid. We do our best to push responsibility down as much as possible to where the work is getting done, where the rubber hits the road, where the, um, you know, the information and expertise is to make decisions. Uh, and we also have coordinate coordinative functions, uh, hovering above that to do our best to make sure that we're communicating well and collaborating and, and forging interoperation amongst our, our different projects and our different tools. So equity-wise, we've distributed equity to uh, nearly everyone at Consensus. There, there are some new people that uh, are not part of a distribution yet. Uh, the intent is to create a, a mesh of projects and companies, uh, some of which will externalize as legal entities, and one has already done so, uh, which remain uh, collaborative and where essentially a bunch of entrepreneurs within consensus feel like there's no better place to be entrepreneurs and, and so effectively stay connected to the consensus mesh. So this is this seems very reminiscent of the way that the game studio uh, Valve is organised, where and and I'm not fully fully familiar with the structure of Valve, but it is a it's generally thought of as an anarcho syndicalist arrangement where the actual employees own the company and share in its profits. Is this uh, is this something similar to consensus? And is this something that is this a kind of 
structure that we can expect to see uh, developing in the future? Um, so that's the general idea. I mean, currently, it started with me and uh, uh, all the employees owned all the company at that point. Um, so uh, that was a good start and uh, uh, certainly going to disseminate lots of equity, um, both in the hub company and, and especially in all the different spoke companies where uh, we feel it's uh, important that consensus retains uh, some equity, significant equity in some cases, but uh, uh, really enables uh, the core contributors on all those projects to own, own their projects. Is it a pattern for the future? I would say absolutely. Um, uh, because of uh, the nature of blockchain, uh, we've been calling it a veridical system, a system of or pertaining to the truth. Um, because of that trust, min trust minimized nature, uh, as uh, Nick Zabo describes it, uh, where people can, uh, even if they have co competing agendas, trust that the shared infrastructure that they're using is not cheatable, basically, uh, that no minority set of actors, whether on public blockchain or private permission blockchain, can improperly manipulate the data or the business logic. And also because of the the nature of the cryptographic security, um, full stack uh, built in all the way through the system, uh, making it a, a more secure IT infrastructure. You take those two components and um, you place them on a decentralized, permissionless peer-to-peer -peer network, and you have essentially uh, a low barrier to entry uh, free market. And, and so in that sort of context, it becomes much more difficult to be an intermediary um, and essentially in intermediation is valuable when it reduces friction, um, reduces cost or adds value to a transaction. Um, and I know Vinay's uh, a big fan of Ronald Coase, uh, as I am. Uh, essentially, uh, intermediation is a good thing, but uh, intermediaries tend to impose themselves in a transaction and increase the spread between what they extract and the value they add to the transaction to the uh, transaction. Uh, so we will see um, in this massively free market, new global economic context, uh, we will see the size of intermediation or the size of the value extracted dramatically decreasing. Uh, basically, it becomes a, an efficient price discovery mechanism for the value of intermediation. So uh, we'll see a lot of intermediation shrink and just fall away in many different business verticals. And so if you're a big entity like a bank um, who you know, is selling trust, uh, basically selling intermediation, I think we will see the ability to replace those, those large entities with uh, essentially software that can provide trust. And I think we will see many uh, small agile entities pop up identify solutions, solve those problems, and then uh, fade back into subspace uh, to, to reconstitute themselves to solve some other problem. So absolutely small, agile, perhaps meshes of uh, interoperating entities. So I know we would all love to digress into uh, into Coase and Hayek and, and, and how they weigh in on all of this. Um, but um, but uh, to keep this 
Well, you you do want people to have a you know clear understanding of where we are. Right? <laughs> well, absolutely. I I would I would love to hear Vinay uh, digress. I, I think that would be uh, I think extremely valuable, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's okay. Let's Let, let's make this a three-hour podcast. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so uh, so coast. So can uh, can Joe? You can probably you can probably take a crack at this. What uh, can you explain? What coast's uh, primary relevant insight was to this conversation. Well, I, I've no doubt that Finet can do a much better job uh, than I can, uh, but but essentially it's about uh, uh, marginal cost of uh, the next transaction where uh, you bring in services into your corporation um, that uh, would be too or more expensive uh, to transact with uh, in an open market. And so uh, search functions and, and other sorts of elements make it a little bit too expensive to, uh, let's say, do janitorial services uh, outside of your organization or um, typing services or mailroom services. These these are all uh, obviously ancient technologies and uh, all those things were parts of large companies and, and have since been uh, outsourced into uh, you know, entities that... Uh, focused on their core competencies like um, janitorial. Mm-hmm. Vinay, do it, please do a better job. Well, I mean, that's the essence of it, right? So Coase basically says, if markets are efficient, why do companies exist? Why don't we just have you know, infinite seas of small uh, shops, which are each you know, one or two people, and uh, you know, why isn't the economy made up of these things? So he says, basically, there must be situations in which uh, a hierarchical command and control structure is more efficient than a market, and then we've got to try and identify why that's happening. And what Coase comes up with is the idea of transaction costs and uh, decision costs. So if you've got a large organisation and you've got to answer a really hard question like exactly what material should we use to make our aeroplane wing, um, you might want to go and test you know, huge numbers of different materials, and you might want to talk to basically everybody in the world. So making the decision might cost you $10 million. So at that point, you know, you're going to want a nice long run of aeroplanes to pay for the cost of making that decision. Uh, and it could be $100 million in today's money. So the idea is that basically the more people that are going to implement the decision that you make, the more money you could put into making a really high-quality decision. And the ordinary employees in ordinary companies are basically paying the company for making decisions for them. And the payment that they're making is the gap between their salary as a freelance and the salary they get if they draw it from the company. So basically you, what you have is this model that the companies are basically there to make decisions for people and that people take a pay cut relative to what they could get in the open market, which reflects the value of the decisions that are being made. And that's obviously not the only reason that companies exist. There are all kinds of other things to do with capital management and so on. But it gets right into this notion that um, if you can no longer make good decisions because your company is too large and too bureaucratic, you probably have disease for which you will not recover. Because if the core function of the company is to make good decisions for its employees and it stops being able to deliver on that, you have a problem right in the core. And let's, uh, well, we're there then, let's also hit decentralization. How do you guys define decentralization? What's decentralization? <laughs> I would simply say it's the replacement of corporations and markets. That's nice. 
Yeah, so you know what we were touching on before, where uh, I think Coase was thinking about the uh, how big your company should grow to be uh, efficient. Uh, now we can start thinking about how how small your company should shrink to, where it really just focuses on core competencies. And so uh, that's that's an element of uh, decentralization in the economy, where we have these small agile entities that are. Um, essentially uh, forming solutions, delivering solutions. Uh, with respect to technology, it's, uh, um, I don't know, uh, lots of nodes, um, each with shared responsibility. So, Vinay, how does this in- influence your uh, your aspirations for the way Hexayurt Capital organizes itself? Well, so we are going in a, in a very different direction from consensus. My... Uh, you know when you have to buy a Macintosh, your choice is basically the second of the new or uh, the best of the old. You know, you, you kind right. of either want to take the you <laughs> yeah. know kind of second cut of the innovation. So, okay, Bitcoin is a little hot. Ethereum, on the other hand, is just right. Um, and this is very much the kind of decentralize everything, decentralize all the things. For us, we wanted to basically use extremely static, stable, boring, normal-looking corporate forms uh, so that structurally we weren't taking very much risk. Uh, and then the intention is to invest in things which are completely, basically batshit, like things which are far outside of the domain of what regular VC is willing to touch, because they've got way too much technical complexity for most VCs to be able to do due diligence on, uh, and they are tied to kind of geopolitical and geostrategic um, uh, theses, which are basically just outside of the scope of VC as it currently stands. Um and you know my kind of inspiration for that is very much Elon Musk, who has a very, very, very you know straight down the line corporate structure, but is going after problems that until he came along were naturally seen as being the domain of government, and that's kind of the way that we're playing it. Um, which is not to say that I don't think the decentralized swarm approach works. Uh, it clearly does, and it'd be nice if some of the things that we invest in have that swarm function because it's clearly very efficient. Um, but we wanted to make sure that our kind of central core was very, very dull, uh, at least as far as the kind of bureaucratic and administrative side of it goes. Yeah, we're we're getting duller and duller as we get uh, as we develop products and customers and clients and responsibilities. So uh, yeah, we're, we're yeah. I don't believe consensus is ever going to become dull. <laughs> it has, it, the excitement is in the DNA. It is hopefully. These are very much uh, new ways of getting old jobs done yeah i think it's very very clear because uh, remember you know i, I worked at consensus for quite a while and it's very clear that consensus is a very very new way of solving these problems these kind of swarm organizations are you know hugely influential you know wikipedia has that structure linux has that structure you know we know that it's possible to generate enormous amounts of value using those kind of things uh, and i think that is very much the direction of the future for sure yeah, so I, I was speaking earlier about uh, top-down command and control infrastructures and pretty much completely ripping off from Vinay. These uh, systems, these information systems, uh, were built on a database technology uh, that essentially uh, constrained what those information systems could do. There, there certainly is replication capability and uh, you can synchronize different items from different databases but um, up to up till the advent of blockchain you really 
by necessity had to build siloed systems. And so that essentially creates a context in which it's us versus them. It's, uh, it's company and customer. Um, block, blockchain um, elevates collaboration to a first-class citizen. And uh, by default, we are going to be designing uh, systems that enable entities in different sectors uh, to build shared infrastructure and, uh, you know, figure out how to collaborate almost first and then differentiate uh, uh, at certain levels uh, of their offerings. So that is absolutely a technology that will drastically reduce redundancy, increase fluidity. Um, it is, you know, it's going to uh, raise the speed of this exponential growth that we're all uh, pretty overwhelmed by. There's other examples of, of new new forms of organization. I'm thinking specifically of Burning Man, where you have a, a basic, I guess, scaffold for for a social structure that's laid out in some principles and uh, and the the provision of um, and the provision of basic utilities, uh, and and the provision of basic utilities is something what, what, that I want to get into uh, with relation to the role of an intermediary uh, later on. But for now, um, do you see uh, do you see things like Burning Man as being a uh, a precursor, an influencer, a an, a petri dish for for new uh, organizational technologies? Oh, you, Vinay. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, it's, you know, there's no mistake that, you know, Burning Man is almost exactly the same age as the internet. You know, you can imagine that if you pulled the internet out of Burning Man, there wouldn't be a whole pile left at the end of that process. Uh, and similarly, I think if you pulled the Burning Man out of the internet, you'd discover that most of Silicon Valley just evaporated. Um, so there's a very tight relationship between the values of the 60s, the political experimentation of the 60s, the social model building in the 60s, uh, that rolls over to become internet culture, that rolls over to become Burning Man. I think these things are very, very deeply interconnected. Um, it's tempting for us to describe everything that's happening uh, using the kind of primary metaphor of the day. So uh, apparently back in, you know, when people first invented uh, hydraulic tubes for moving mail around, you know, these systems you occasionally see in banks or hotels, uh, everybody would describe the brain in terms of the hydraulic tubes, and that was the kind of technology of the day, and that was what they described it as. So right now, I think because we're in an age of technology, it's tempting to try and describe everything which is good as if it was technology. Uh, and I think that that can be quite misleading. Like, you know, a change in social organization certainly changes things, but that doesn't mean that it's a technology. Um, society is older than tech in that sense. Uh, and I think that Burning Man is a clear example of something which is cultural. Uh, it's supported by technology. It shapes technology to some degree, but it's fundamentally a cultural thing. So let me uh, take a stab at the, the Burning Man question. Uh, so Burning Man is uh, a, a beautiful and astonishing experience, but I'm not sure I would think of it as a template for for a functioning society. Uh, it's a... Uh, uh, that there's quite a bit of organization uh, ahead of time and in cleanup, um, and then just sort of uh, loving collaborative chaos um, as as that you know uh, performance art experience unfolds. Uh, but 
we I think we need more rigorous social structures. It's a, it's a very special context where people are just overwhelmed with the wonder of the situation and very loving and very trusting. And that's just not uh, something that we can keep going for perhaps more than seven days or you know, not do more often than uh, a few times a year. Uh, so I, I do think we need more uh, rigorous trust structures in order to keep things operating. So we've got, in, in, with Burning Man, and I'm going somewhere with this, <laughs> I promise, <laughs> um, with, uh, with Burning Man, we have this culture of trust and openness and participation, but its, it's exercise is facilitated by preparation and the provision of, uh, of services um, <laughs> like portaloos uh, that are required to, uh, to create a hospitable environment. And yeah, you're talking about the whole kind of Department of Public Works aspect of Burning Man. Absolutely, right? And so when we talk about uh, new technologies that enable, like, like blockchain, that enable trust and have the potential to disintermediate, they can disintermediate uh, organizations like banks uh, and insurance companies, peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, -peer, uh, market providers, etc. But only to the degree that they can provide that trust component, but they can't necessarily provide the uh, the provisioning services that those inter intermediaries traditionally provide. So, how do and this is this is a question I've been putting to a lot of people recently. How do we disintermediate these organisations and provide value without throwing out that uh, that service provisioning side of it? Joe, do you want to take a crack at that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I, I have a great answer for that, other than indicating that I don't think we need to try to disintermediate businesses. I think uh, businesses will uh, vaporize uh, if they don't adapt quickly or shrink up uh, as appropriate. They will essentially, you know, turning coasts uh, a little bit uh, inside out, they will find the minimal size at, at which they they are viable uh, effectively. Um, with respect to provisioning, we at Consensus mm -hmm. are building supply chain management systems, provenance systems. Supply chain management is more about logistics. Uh, provenance is perhaps more about the uh, information or metadata around, uh, around all of those flows. And so I, I really, you know, I, I see uh, our current infrastructure evolving. Uh, and we've done, you know, we built tremendous technologies in so many industries. We don't need to get rid of all of that. Uh, we just need to place it on uh, more rigorous, more fluid, less uh, redundant uh, infrastructure or, or foundations. Yeah, I think of this is being part of a broader set of trends too. So uh, UK just announced that in uh, 2016, when you added it all up, the wind generation had exceeded the coal generation, and that never happened before. And you know, wind is pretty decentralized compared to coal-fired power stations. It doesn't have these enormously long supply chains. You know, pretty much you install it, you maintain it, you're good. And that wave of decentralization in the structure, the infrastructure, um, I think is really important with or without the internet. So, you know, if you just had the solar and wind revolution happening, you'd still be able to talk about decentralization before you talked about things like blockchains. 
So I think that there is a general wave of critical infrastructure becoming more and more and more decentralized simply because it's really efficient. And until we get something like fusion reactors, I think you're likely to see decentralization as the primary mode of production for energy and potentially the primary mode of production for manufacturing once we get to things like 3D printers that work uh, or cheap CNC machines. So I think there's a general rebalancing of the disequilibria that starts with industrial production. Uh, and I think that it's not unreasonable to think that that might knock on to things like the financial system, because if it becomes possible to build small institutions that nonetheless have very rigorous audit, then you could do things like go back to a uh, notion where individual communities have their own banks. It's just now that the you know kind of functional part of the bank that handles the money is running on something like a blockchain. Uh, but the personal service, getting to know your customer, figuring out who to lend money to safely, side of it is still done by the people who live in the community in the way the banking always was. So this notion of these very, very sleek and efficient mega banks, which are terrible at customer service, don't know the communities that they're in, lend money based on algorithms, then don't make a very good job of it. You know, you could wind up in a future where you get a platform-style centralization of the management of stuff, which goes essentially on the blockchain, at the same time as you get this kind of very decentralized, very friendly, very personal thing on the other side, which does the estimation of credit risk. So, you know, it's not that that is no longer a bank, but you've disaggregated the entire back end into a blockchain, and then the front end becomes basically one bank manager per community, and these guys are more or less independent actors. So that kind of tearing apart of the existing structures and a separation of layers and then re-aggregation of different forms, I think that's very much the shape of things to come. Wow, that's fantastic. That's a, uh, that's a great breakdown of, of how that might evolve. I've never thought about it that way. Well, I mean, we'll see what happens, right? I mean, the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem is very much that stuff in action, isn't it? You know, huge numbers of tiny, tiny little companies that wink in and existence in and out. You know, resting on a bunch of core platforms. Um, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. What's next for all of this? I mean, we've got, uh, we have new information technologies, we have new systems for organizing entrepreneurially, and we have this trend toward decentralization, at least in, uh, in a large portion of, of the services and products that, that the economy provides. So how can we expect to see this unfold? And how can we expect to see this change the experience of the everyman? One of the huge drivers on this is the stalling out of the existing model of globalization. So Brexit, uh, America withdrawing from TTP, uh, the possibility of France exiting the EU and possibly the Netherlands, all of this kind of stuff is a really profound breakdown of the old vision of how all this stuff was going to play out. So I think that what we're seeing is as that vision begins to seriously run into trouble, the future is wide open for other visions of the future, and one of those is this kind of decentralization. Uh, the context of blockchain is necessarily global, and the barriers to entry in, in uh, uh, forming identity, in forming persistent portable reputation, in getting loans, microloans, crowdfunding are uh, becoming drastically or are soon to be drastically lo lower. We at Consensus are working on all of those projects. Uh, so I do believe that 
while we will lose a tremendous number of legacy jobs to machines, to automation, I am optimistic and I feel like we will see tremendously expanding economy and we will see job functions uh, that we can't even imagine right now, just, just as uh, you couldn't really explain uh, what our Twitter specialist does uh, to somebody from 20 years ago. So uh, I, I think uh, in terms of filling niches, in terms of solving problems, there will be many people around the world who are able to do that. But also as we uh, are able to satisfy our basic needs through automation as housing, clothing, food, etc., becomes so cheap that we almost don't need to work for it. Um, we're going to uh, have the freedom, the opportunity to uh, focus on different things as a society. So, so maybe uh, education, entertainment becomes a driving force uh, for government, and where maybe uh, health becomes something that uh, your government effectively incentivizes you to to look after for yourself. I'm, uh, as I indicated before, I'm, I'm really optimistic about uh, what these technologies will enable for humanity. Well, this leads us to so many places, right? We've got job loss due to automation, um, provision of services in the decentralized society, the hypothetical decentralized society, the, uh, the resolution of, of the, the vision of globalization, all of which are far too, far too far afield for this conversation. So let's wrap it up there. But I, I do hope that we all get to, uh, to reconvene to, to tackle some of these, some of these more specific <laughs> that would be uh, fun. avenues. Or just every, every time something crazy happens. Yeah, we let's do it every uh, um, <laughs> 1.5 million blocks. Thank you for listening to episode 39 of State Change. Episode 40 features Barrett Anderson and Brett Horvath, co-founders of the online publication Scout.ai, alongside consensus resident media guru Amanda Guterman. In the upcoming episode, we will explore the concerning emergence of a decentralized, artificial intelligence-driven, weaponized propaganda machine. Barrett Anderson recently debated former Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt whether the internet was a democratic force in the world, swaying the audience 60% to the negative. It's a foundational conversation that sets the stage for subsequent episodes. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to State Change on iTunes or find us at statechange.net. You can follow us on Twitter at statechange underscore. And if you have any comments about the show or any questions, email contact at statechange.net.